The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I was not your host last week. Uh, John was, so I just wanted to get that in there for everyone. Um, today we're going to tackle a very uh, complicated yet what um, we all hope to be promising um, new law, which is we have our parity laws, which have been in the process of being... Um, I guess, passed maybe for at least 15 years. And um, we do have the new parity laws, which were signed into um, effectiveness just recently. And we have two guests today who are going to explain to all of us what that means for the individual for our, and families that experience um, mental health and substance use disorders, and we're also going to talk about what kind of opportunities we hope there will be under this new law. So let me introduce our first guest. Um, I'm not sure that our second guest has called in yet, but our first guest is Jameson Monroe, who is the CEO of Newport Academy. Um, Newport Academy is a mental health and addiction facility, and they have facilities in Connecticut and California. And... um, Jameson and the folks at Newport Academy believe this will finally make mental health treatment affordable, bringing people with mental illness out of the shadows. Carolyn Wolf, who I hope will be joining us, is an attorney in mental health law, and she believes this is long overdue as the insurance companies have fought for for years not to cover people with mental illness. Um, But the, the really the next big hurdle is getting insurance companies to actually follow the law. So, Jameson, welcome to One Hour at a Time, and thank you for taking time to discuss this really complicated issue. Mary, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be on here and to hopefully shed some light um, on, yes, what is a very complicated issue, and I think only some of it, we only know some now, and we'll figure out as as we move towards implementation. Um, Carolyn joined us. Uh, So, welcome, Carolyn. Um, I've to do a small introduction to you, to our guests. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I, you for having me. You're welcome. So um, can, you, can one of you explain to our listeners exactly what is this new parity law and how is this different from the Wellstone um, law that was passed a few years ago? Uh, well, I guess I could start and feel free to jump in anytime. Um, basically, this law is bringing forward the Wellstone Law. Um, The Wellstone Law has been in effect since 2008, but never really enforced. 
And so um, the Obamacare statute has really moved it forward, put it into the spotlight, and really, you know, is finally going to be able in some way to enforce that law. So it sort of brought it to life, so to speak, or rebrought it to life. Um, the, you know, New York State also has Timothy's Law, which is also a parity statute. And what that means is that when an insurance company offers medical benefits, medical surgical benefits, whatever those might be, they also have to offer equivalent mental health benefits. So, for example, if they're offering 30 days of hospitalization paid for by the insurance carrier, they have to offer the same for a mental health admission, for example. Anything you want to add to that, Jameson? Um, I just echo that, um, you know, what it does is it actually does enforce a law that was passed um, I think in, in 2008, 2009, um, and it's going to be huge in regards to enforcing it. And what it does is it, it requires coverage and places mental health and substance use disorder as one of the 10 essential health benefits categories. And so what had happened was that insurance companies have the the mental health and substance abuse category was all, always pushed to the side you know, as a result of probably stigma and just a really lack of understanding around treatment. Um, and I know Carolyn fights this every day in her practice um, in regards to getting people to understand the necessity and benefit of treatment. And so now, you know, we feel in our industry that um, hopefully we'll have an even playing field um, across the board with other with other health issues, which will allow us to begin to reduce the stigma around mental health, which will open open care for people and, and open willingness to get care, and then now hopefully there will be the financial support for that care to be paid for. Right. The other thing that the Obama law did was, which extended Wellstone really, which I don't believe had this um, part of the law, which was that you can't deny coverage for pre-existing conditions. So now people who may have been diagnosed with a serious mental illness in the earlier ages, which is generally when it manifests, usually around 18 to 22, 23, you know, maybe either they're covered under their parents' insurance or they're not, but if they independently attempt to get insurance, they can't be denied that coverage. I know a lot of our families at Westbridge have insurance that um, in the policy states they're covered, but getting access to that benefit has been extremely difficult. And in some cases, they've had to devote hours and hours of advocacy to get access to their benefits. Will this change that? In my opinion, I don't think so. I think it's actually going to make the problem more difficult because now insurance companies, managed care companies, have to cover a broader range of people, many of whom have pre-existing conditions. So they're sick or they've been in the system a long time and and may likely be even sicker, um, which, of course, is going to be more costly and more widely used, you know, in terms of the benefit. And it, it may be in the managed care's interest, and that's what we're concerned about, to deny coverage or to challenge coverage, saying it either doesn't meet the language of the policy or it's not medically necessary, as the insurance carriers often use. You know, this this 
this treatment is not medically necessary, quote-unquote. Um, and often these terms are not well-defined. So what my idea of medical necessity may be may be different than the insurance companies. And, you know, this is how we appeal these cases is to actually work with the language of the policy, but often it's ambiguous or the the diagnosis and treatment itself may be a little more complicated and so this is where you get into denial of coverage and the need to appeal those denials. Right. Yeah. Carolyn Carolyn I've actually never discussed this by ourselves, but I totally agree with your, your sentiments there in that in theory, you know, the, the idea of having a lot more people having health insurance coverage is is a good one. Um, more people have access to benefits. In in our space I do see uh definitely potential negative outfalls like like Carolyn was was outlining and one is the fact that you know we we do at Newport Academy we have our own in-house billing department insurance department authorization utilization reviews so I'm very familiar with with every step of that process and and a lot of times it is an uphill battle with an insurance company because you know a lot of people don't understand that what we're doing is we're providing the care we're providing that care to a patient that, that is under our roof and then we may only get, uh, say, seven days of treatment at a time when we know it's absolutely necessary that this person be with us for at least a month or two, um, you know, and, and we're arguing with someone who works for an insurance company who's sitting in an office somewhere in Topeka, Kansas, um, that is trained to, to say, no, there's no medical necessity, even though we know that, that there is. Like Carolyn said, our definition you know, maybe different than theirs, or it may be the same, but it's a matter of opinion, and, and they and they deny uh, treatment when we know it's absolutely necessary. And so now, with insurance ca- companies having to carry literally tens of millions of more people under their plans, they're going to have to start arguably paying for all these people um, under these plans, and so their their costs are going to increase. And one thing that I see, which could be a potential unfortunate. Uh, result is that uh, because there are going to be more people on insurance plans that, one, like Carolyn said, they could deny more, but also they could drive reimbursement rates down. Um, and they're already pretty low, in my opinion, in regards to the cost of providing quality mental health care. Um, insurance companies don't reimburse it at, at a very fair rate, um, in my opinion. And so, now that we're going to have more volume, I see insurance companies starting to drive that that rate down, which would would only um, decrease quality of care, in my opinion. So yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I also the other issue with the law is, you know, it's a good start. It's better than what we had before, but it doesn't really outline or look at realistically what's involved with mental health treatment. I mean, you really can't equate mental health treatment with most medical treatments, for example, surgery, you have an app and, you know, you, you have appendicitis, you go for an appendectomy, you know, it'll be one or two days in the hospital, one or two days post-op, maybe. I mean, it's much shorter these days than it used to be. And, you know, you get your treatment and you go home and, you know, you're done. It doesn't come back. It doesn't recur. You don't have to have compliance with anything other than whatever the brief post-op care is, well, it doesn't work that way in the mental health world. You know, these are lifelong illnesses, many that require not only 
treatment per se, you know, the administration of medication, let's say, but it requires so many more supportive wraparound services, housing, case management, um, you know, outpatient programs on all different levels that, you know, again, so it'll pay for 20 days of hospitalization or 30 days of an outpatient program. You know, that is just a teeny weeny tip of the iceberg. What about all of the other services that are required to keep people stable and in treatment? And, you know, nobody has really talked about that. Right. Exactly. We in terms of medical health, we do have chronic illnesses that um, are lifelong. We have diabetes, we have heart disease, we have asthma, we have cardiovascular disease that can be extremely chronic in nature, and people may end up with um, needing, uh, you know, home health aids. They may need to have uh, certain accommodations made, and um, and like for people with diabetes, if they don't manage their diet well and they end up with complications, nobody ever says to them, well, you, you haven't managed your diet well, you're not exercising, and you've gained 30 pounds, so we're not going to let you come in and have um, that uh, kidney dialysis or have that treatment for the ulcerative um, colitis that you have on your leg or, or in your bowel or whatever. And um, when we come back from this commercial, I'd like to talk a little bit about that discrimination that happens. Mm-hmm. And we'll, be, we'll be right back after this commercial. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Today we're talking about the new mental health parity law that has been recently um, enacted or empowered, I guess is maybe a better um, way to put it, with the advent of Obamacare. And our guests today who are um, helping us sort this very complicated issue out is Jameson Monroe, who is the founder and CEO of Newport Academy. Um, Jameson went through years of personal recovery and treatment programs for drug abuse as a teen before finally getting sober. Newport Academy is the culmination of Jameson's journey and desire to create an unrivaled setting to help teens and their families recover from the destructive effects of behavioral health issues. Today, Newport Academy is the nation's leading treatment center for teens and young adults, and they have programs in both California and Connecticut. Our other guest today is Carolyn Wolf, who is the executive partner in the law firm of Abrams, Fensterman, Fensterman, and 40 other names, (laughs) yeah, and company, and director of the firm's mental health law practice. Um, Ms. Wolf's practice concentrates in the areas of mental health and health care law, representing mental health and health care professionals, major hospital systems and community hospitals, institutional and community outpatient programs, skilled nursing facilities, higher education institutions, individuals, and families. So before we went to break, I, I kind of brought up this whole notion of really it's discrimination between chronic illnesses, and I was wondering if you, you both could comment on that. Well, I think to a great extent that's true. Um, I think, you know, mental illness carries with it, you know, unfortunately stigma um, and and societal biases. Um, you know, people are not as embarrassed to say I have diabetes as they are to say I have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Um, I think that mental illness, I mean, people don't realize either that Serious mental illness can also bring about medical issues, and so that just compounds the problem as well. Um, also, you know, substance abuse issues that are co-occurring with with mental illness um, exacerbates that. And so, I think, even though yes, other illnesses are lifelong illnesses, again, for the most part, they don't. I don't believe they require the same wraparound services um, or social services, not always, but certainly as much of the time as serious mental illnesses do. Yeah, I mean, on, on the note of the stigma side of things, and, and one thing regarding the, these new laws coming to effect is that, you know, mental health arguably got parity before substance abuse ever did. And so one of the one of the new concepts is that substance abuse is counted as a mental health disorder, of which I fully believe and that, that it absolutely should be. Um, and if you look at, at preventable disease in this country as um, a factor of annual health care for our nation, you know, preventable disease is 75% of our total health care bill. So, um we spend an exorbitant amount of money on, on treating symptoms um, of, of preventable diseases, preventable diseases such as, you know, diabetes, obesity, uh, substance abuse, and mental health, um, you know. And, and so we spend most of our money on treating these and, and very, very little, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, uh, yeah, on treating these and very, very little on, on prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, a lot of, 
a lot of good doctors, including Nora Volka, who's the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, is quoted as saying prevention is the most effective form of health care. Um, so what I would love to see is more spending. Um, there, there is a study done by the Department of Health and Human Services that did show that, you know, $1 invested in prevention saves $18 to, to our country, to society. It's education, medical, quality of life costs. Um, and $1 spent on treatment saves $7. So, you know, it, it could be argued that if you were an investor that you would much prefer to invest in prevention. But, you know, I think a lot of factors go into that. One is that no one really makes a whole lot of money off prevention. Um, and two is the, is the stigma, like we're talking about, is that it's a lot easier to say that you have a, a more normalized health care problem than a, than a mental health disorder. Right. No, I agree. And I think that's the message that hasn't gotten across because so much attention gets focused on on the very end of that discussion. In other words, you know, people are decompensating, they're getting sicker, but it's not as dramatic as when there's a full-blown decompensation or destabilization. And that's when everybody sits up and takes notice. And you know, why make people be in crisis or get to that level when we could intervene so much sooner? Jameson, yeah, what is exactly your- agree. I mean, and, and that's why I work, that's why I love working with teenagers is that, you know, we work with 12 to 20 year olds and, and like you said, that's typically when, when the onset is, um, or almost, yeah, almost always when the onset is. And so we like to, to treat kids when when we're starting to see these symptoms and hopefully we can, you know, one, keep kids abstinent because we can talk about how, you know, substance abuse can only uh, trigger or or magnify a pre-existing mental health disorder. So keep kids abstinent and then teach them, you know, coping skills um, going forward around, around their mental health and, like you said, provide a continuum of care because it's not really just a, it's a short, you know, 15-day hospital stay, and then you're done. You, it, it's a continued. It typically will be with you for for most of your life. Right, and then, and as a mental health attorney, the other issue that you, the other part of what you've raised is, you know, as children or minors, pr- parents and families have more control over access to records, the ability to speak with the treaters, the ability to be more actively involved in treatment. Once their quote unquote children become adults, you know, reach the age of 18, that's when all of the protective laws kick in the confidentiality laws, the privacy laws. And, you know, families suddenly find themselves in a situation where their psychotic 21 year old is saying, I don't want you to speak to my parents, I don't want you to tell them anything about my treatment. And, you know, basically, you know, this wall goes up that is almost impenetrable. Correct. Jameson, what has been your experience? Because I guess we could look at your program as being early intervention. What has been the long-term outcomes for the folks that have gone through Newport Academy? Um, well, when you're looking at long-term outcomes, you're looking at um, various factors, right? So we look at really um, 15 different factors across the board, across uh, an adolescent you know, lifetime, right? So we look at at depression, anxiety, stress levels, drug use, alcohol use, um, suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, 
um, school motivation, participation, and grades, uh, and then family relationships as well as a huge one. So healthy communication, feeling supported, feeling loved, and the amount of fighting that occurs within a family system. Um, so across the board, the earlier you can intervene, the better. Um, I, I don't believe that all treatment is created equal. Um, I, I say that again, I don't believe that all treatment is created equal. So um, something that we do, which is key, is that we, we do, and like what Carolyn saying, is we involve the family in every step of the process, which is vital when you're treating adolescents and you're talking about continuing care because that family is going to need to provide some of those coping skills for a child um, in order to not kind of relapse into their mental health disorder or their, or their old behavior, right? So involving families in treatment is, is the number one indicator in, in long-term success. And by that, I mean we, we have families on campus one to two times a week for anywhere from 8 to 16 hours a week um, involved in educational programs, process, uh, communication skills, lectures, um, various different types of, of therapies that we're doing with families. Which is really wonderful because I can tell you from my practice, you know, unfortunately families sometimes don't get to us until they've been dealing with this for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And at that point, um, you know, they're in what I like to call a system, you know, the family system where there's a lot of enabling, there's a lot of denial, but, you know, as the family member ages and escalates in their non-compliance, their lack of insight, their revolving door, it just gets more and more difficult for the family. But now it's very difficult to backtrack on that and get families sometimes to accept the illness, to understand what it is, to give up some of the control, to turn it over to the professionals, to understand what their needs are even in relation to what the person who's sick needs are. There are well children in the family who bear the brunt of this. So I completely agree that the earlier you can intervene, the younger you can intervene and, and be proactive, you know, the better it is not only for the individual with the illness but for the loved ones around them. And do you believe that the new parity law will support early intervention and treatment? No, again, I think it's a start, but I don't think the services being offered are comprehensive enough to really give families and in turn the individual with the illness, you know, the kind of comprehensive services that they need. And as Jameson was saying, you know, if, if they were available and we could bring them to bear early on, Think how much better every better off everyone would be, and down the road they actually would require less services and less cost. Um, but I don't think it goes far enough by any stretch. You know, and I think the point you're making is that families are involved with their with their um, son or daughter. Most parents are involved until they day, the day they die, whether it's from a distance or they're doing their own case management because they, they don't have access to that. And there are very few programs that are like Newport Academy or even Westbridge that really do provide that long-term support for families. You know, there, well, part of the problem in the system, too, is that all of 
the programs, and all of you run wonderful, amazing programs, but then they're all scattered, and there's no real, and I say this more and more often, there is no real centralized way for families and individuals to access um, the programs. I mean, I know that everyone has websites and does some PR, but, you know, unless you kind of are familiar with the lay of the land, it's really very difficult for families to access and even to vet programs, you know, programs like yours that do such a good job and others that don't do such a good job and be able to understand, you know, which are the better programs and where they can get the most services and so on. So it's a very scattered landscape and very difficult to bring together and translate for families who don't live and work in this in this field to know, you know, what's really in the best interest of their family member. And we'll be right back after this commercial um, with more with our guests. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today. And our guests are Jameson Monroe, who's the founder and CEO of Newport Academy, and Carolyn Wolf, who's the executive partner in the law firm of Abrams, Fenderstrom, Fenderstrom Men, Fenderstrom Men, Iceman, etc. And we're talking about parity um, for mental health and substance use disorders. And 
The good news is, is we've made a step forward, and the bad news is we still have a long road to hoe. And um, this is not a magic bullet. Uh, This law is not a magic bullet for coverage or for people being able to access their benefits, but it is a step forward. And and part of the the struggle in in our discussion is why is this so hard? Why do we have to fight so hard to have parity? And um, a lot of it has to do with um, stigma, and, and I really believe discrimination. Most families have some family member that has a substance use disorder, and I would say most families have somebody who has somebody with a mental health disorder. These are common disorders in the general public, but um, for whatever reason, we don't hide them. When HIV was diagnosed, um, people in the uh, LGBT community came out and said, we, we want research, we want treatment, we want funding, we don't want to die. And um, they got amazing access to Congress and to research and to funding. Yet people with mental health and substance use disorders have never really had that kind of access or um, support. And I, I yeah. think we should talk yeah. a little yeah. bit yeah. about that. We, we, we definitely need a movement like that, Mary. I mean, you've seen this. I mean, in, in race and um, sexual orientation and, and HIV AIDS, um, you've seen it happen numerous times. And there's been multiple attempts to do so. Um, one thing you mentioned was was race. I am sorry. Was um, was was research. Sorry, it was the research side of things. And and like I said earlier, not all treatments created equal. And so, you've got a lot of people, in my opinion, um, that do kind of milk the system. And you have a lot of holding tanks. And and we're talking about um, you know training people to actually treat and assess these disorders. And we can talk about that a little more. But I but I do think that you've had a lot of people that are just milking the system that, that, that constructs high volume, you know, high frequency um, hospital treatment facilities um, that just take people in, don't actually properly uh, diagnose, assess, and definitely not properly treat people um, or educate families. Um, and, then, and then people are discharged only to return soon thereafter. Um, and so I think what we really need is a big push on, on best practices uh, on research and, and on outcomes. A lot of facilities I know are reluctant to, one, keep outcomes and definitely, second, publish outcomes because they're, they're atrocious. Um, and what we do at Newport Academy is we've been keeping our outcomes for the past five years with the hope that um, once we have enough data um, around the types of therapies and treatments we provide for teenagers, you know, with various mental health diagnoses that will be able to provide these outcomes and create a higher standard of care that shows uh, prevention of, of readmission um, later on in life um, and, and overall quality of life and, and cost savings to uh, individuals, to families, and to society as a whole. No, I agree, and I think it is an issue of strength in numbers and um, and, you know, power in Congress. And unfortunately, you know, this area doesn't carry with it people who have 
who are able to have the loud voices that are required, um, you know, it's such a debilitating illness that it's very difficult for that population to be, you know, to lobby and to push for this. And the families, you know, are so busy fighting upstream for services, for help, for funding, for just caring for the individual that it also is very difficult for them to be able to go and lobby. Um, you know, families don't often have the money to pay for lobbyists or for a push in Congress or even their state legislators. Um, I mean, there are certainly some breakthroughs. New York got Kendra's law. We got Timothy's law, which is the parity law. But it's such a tremendous effort and push. And there are many advocacy organizations that do an amazing job in supporting, you know, this area and people with mental illness, like NAMI, for example. But again, you know, people, for the most part, are trying to just get through the day or the week um, that the idea that, you know, they have the time, the money, or the ability to go and lobby in Congress or a state legislator, you know, is just so overwhelming. You know, I think that the other side of this is um, how we portray people with mental illness and substance use disorders in the media. And um, I think that there's a lot that could be done to create a more positive image because people do get better from both of these chronic brain diseases. And they they go on to lead really um, fulfilling lives, but that's not what we hear or see. And so it just kind of, I think, gives the general population reason to to not advocate. I think that yeah. that's true in large part. Um, once in a while, you do see um, stories that are more supportive or movies, um, you know, that more accurately portray people with mental illness or with substance abuse in a positive light and the, the treatment, the recovery, the support, the fact that they're people, as we all are, um, but even then, it's almost, it's moment in time. You know, the movie comes out and people talk about it, but it, it's really difficult to pick up the ball on that and carry it forward. And for whatever reason, that often doesn't happen. And then the discussion gets lost in a myriad of other, you know, other areas or other issues. So, yes, I think the whole portrayal um, has to change, and the whole reality of of mental illness and and substance use disorder has to change in order for people to understand really the truth of what goes on, you know, with people who have these illnesses. Right. Yes, I I totally agree. Um, you know, and and I'm proud to say that you know I struggled. Um, my older sister and my younger brother. All three of us struggled with various mental health and substance abuse issues um, in our teens and early 20s, and now we're all in our uh, 30s and 40s and, um, you know, gainfully employed. Two out of three of us have our own businesses and, um, you know, very much productive members of society that are employing and educating and encouraging, you know, hundreds of individuals um, in this country. So, you know, recovery is possible, and, and I'm not ashamed to to say that to, to anybody that will listen. Um, and on the note of, of the way the public perception is, is unfortunately the dominant theme is, is that of a, is a negative one. You know, it's, it's a celebrity um, that is, you know, 
in another in another crisis or uh, running with the law or paparazzi or whatnot on a reality show, um, or it's or it's more devastating, arguably um, more devastating in that it's uh, shooting, you know, at a school, um, and uh, someone has a history of mental health, um, and and so it's. Unfortunately, the dominant theme is, is one of a, of a dark light, but, um, you know, we do every once in a while have a prominent member of society that will stand up and, and speak out about it, but I do think that we're going to really need to push that needle much more to the other side and, and have uh, concentrated efforts um, of, of individuals that, that are in recovery uh, pushing the discussion forward that recovery is possible and that, and that treatment works. And that, and that it should be paid for. And that's the key, the idea that it should be paid for. Um, you know, I think part of it is who, who sits around and has these conversations. You know, the president called a conference together, I think it was after the Newtown shooting, and the vice president was there and other, you know, high-profile politicians. But I don't know of too many people who are the boots on the ground, you know, those of us who work in the trenches, who run programs, who work with families, you know, not a lot of us were asked to Washington to sit down and to talk about the reality of what is going on, you know, with mental health issues in the country. And I think that's part of the problem, too. It's a great soundbite. It sounds good in theory. Everybody goes, ooh, ah, what a great thing. But yet, you know, let's talk to those people who live and deal and work with this every single day for the reality check on, you know, whether this the programs go far enough or what the real issues are or what's the next step and so on. Well, and I think one of the challenges with people who have significant um, mental health issues is where's the line between being able to provide effective care and somebody's civil liberties, I guess, for the, for the lack of better word. Um, because if, you know, if, if, I fall over with a heart attack, they're going to call 911. Total strangers are going to come in and start an IV and um, probably uh, give me a, a shock or two, all without my consent, and that's considered best care. And everybody thinks that that's, that's okay. And, and there's no discussion about, well, Mary didn't sign a consent for treatment and, um, you know, so this is that we can't do this. But yet when people have a significant mental illness and their brain isn't functioning and they don't have their judgments impaired, their thoughts may be, um, they may have a lot of psychosis around their thoughts, then, um, then there's all of these laws that get in the way of really helping somebody at that time access the emergent care that they need to be safe. And they have to get to be such an extreme danger to themselves or others that it's 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 really risky. Well, I completely agree with you. In fact, in my practice, we've been working on proposed legislation to modify the HIPAA confidentiality law to um, see if we can bring families into being deemed part of a treatment the treatment team so that it meets one of the exceptions and they can get access to information and participate under certain guidelines. Um, I, I agree with you. I think the involuntary commitment laws 
are, you know, it's a national standard, but it is a very high standard to meet, and it doesn't really take into account the issue of could care and treatment in a hospital involuntarily be of benefit to the individual. Um, Even though the danger standard has been expanded over the years so that someone doesn't need to necessarily be homicidal or suicidal to be involuntarily committed, but can be a danger to themselves or others in other ways, an inability to care for yourself, poor judgment, striking out at people because you may be paranoid. Um, And other examples, um, they're very strict guidelines, and most of my cases are in the gray area. You know, I will say to families very often, you know, we, we understand your son is ill, but he's not ill enough so to speak, to meet the involuntary commitment standard. And, you know, of course, their response is, well, you know, does something terrible have to happen first? And unfortunately, you know, in a lot of cases, that is what happens. So I agree with you, and I think we do have to start to yield to some of the privacy and individual rights side of things for the safety and benefit of the, the individual and the community and sort of the greater good, if you will. And we'll be right back um, after this commercial break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We're having a very good discussion today about um, parity laws for mental illness and substance use. And 
um, some of the barriers and obstacles we have to overcome to um, be able to really um, get the parity that is um, we're supposed to get. And I would just like to let Jameson and Carolyn um, share with you how you might reach them if you would like to comment or learn more about the work that they do. Jameson, how can people find out about Newport Academy or get in touch with you? Hey there, sorry. So um, the easiest way is to go online to our website, uh, newportacademy.com. That's just www.newportacademy.com. And we've got a lot of information on our website. We have a 24-7 crisis phone line where you can call and get any answers to your questions. Um, If you're looking for treatment, no call to that phone number um, goes unplaced. You know, we're, we are not, we can't treat everybody, um, and we're not appropriate for everybody, but if you call us, no matter what you're looking for, we will try and, and get you um, the best referrals for whatever it is that you're looking for. So it's just newportacademy.com. And Carolyn, how can people um, contact you if they want uh, more information or if they want to find uh, resources in their own community? Um, again, it, the same thing. It would be um, the firm's website is um, abramslaw.com or my direct email is cwolf, C-W-O-L-F-O-L-F at abramslaw.com. Um, we also have a 24-hour answering service um, when people are in crisis or in an emergent situation. And, um, you know, email is probably the best way. And then one of my staff or I will be back to you um, or to the individual, you know, within 24 or to 48 hours. So before we went to break, we were kind of talking about the lack of, of services available um, for people when they're really ill. And um, I, during break, you both had some really good things to say, so I wondered if you would say them on the air. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start that off, and then I think Carolyn can lend more of her expertise to, to the specifics. Um, you know, I, I mentioned the, the negative uh, portrayal in the media, and, and I mentioned you know shooting. Let's take for instance, we're, we're coming up on the on the one year anniversary of of the Newtown Sandy Hook shooting, and you know we have a treatment facility in Bethlehem, Connecticut, which is 45 minutes away from Newtown, um, and you know we have people in our treatment facility from Newtown, so um, we're very close and. To, to that community, um, especially in regards to the mental health side of things. But so you, if you take an instance like that, you know, the first thing that the media set, you know, asked about is, is well, was, did he have a mental health issue? And, and typically the answer is, is, is yes, but then the, the conversation doesn't really go on in a positive manner from there, in my opinion. Um, there are people like Carolyn and I that are quoted in the media saying, yes, we need more treatment, we need more treatment. But... The conversation, I think, does need to go a lot further. And, and like we were talking about during the break is that, um, you know, what, what systems are in place, and, 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 and I think there's a serious lack of them, to, to look at these red flags in order to get individuals like this that, um, where it doesn't have to come to a crisis like this where someone injures themselves or, or others or many others. Um, you know, how can we have proper assessment and treatment in place. And, and part of that, what Carolyn was talking about, was the involuntary 
you know, admissions process. When, when, the, when the flags are there, when the signs are there, why does it have to be so bad before we admit someone? Right, and I've been also talking a lot and trying to kind of change the conversation from, you know, is he or she mentally ill to mental health issues? I mean, it may not change things dramatically, but I think it may work to change some of the stigma so that you don't automatically equate somebody who's mentally ill, quote-unquote, with a violent act, but you know, has mental health issues. And just because they have mental health issues doesn't necessarily mean they suffer from a serious mental illness or a substance abuse problem. Maybe there are other psychological things going on, other sociopathic or personality, you know, aspects to it that may certainly be connected to in some way but are not full-blown mental illness. And so, you know, we're working to try and even change the wording or the conversation. The other issue that you've raised is, you know, what do we do in terms of intervening when we see behaviors and what may proactive or sometimes preventive actions can we take? And we saw this after the Virginia Tech tragedy where college campuses began to set up more aggressively what are called threat assessment teams or behavioral intervention teams where there's a centralized place to report in students who are of concern or exhibiting behaviors that people are concerned about, not labeling them, not diagnosing, just say they're concerned. It's a change, a vast change in behavior or an unusual behavior. Um, And then people are trained to review these and address them in a supportive and thoughtful way, and I've believed for a while that we can do the same thing in a a school setting, in a workplace setting, in a community setting, and even within a family. You can train lay people to identify red flag behaviors or mental health issues. They don't have to become mental health professionals. They don't have to even know exactly what to do about that, but they have to know there is a place they can take that information to people who are trained and qualified to sort it out, see what the issues are. Is it substance abuse? Is it psychiatric? Is it personality? Whatever it might be. And then be able to set up a plan, as we do in my practice, to confront or to address those behaviors of concern. Um, you know, and, and that's where the system comes in. Do we put case management in place? Recommend an outpatient program? Is it somebody who requires inpatient involuntary commitment? You know, what are the parameters necessary to intervene, but intervene sooner rather than later so that people don't get sicker, behaviors don't escalate, and where your intervention has a better shot at being helpful rather than waiting, you know, as was said, you know, until it results in in someone getting hurt or many others getting hurt. I want to thank you both for taking uh, this afternoon to talk with us. This has been a great discussion and conversation, and um, I hope you have a wonderful holiday. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.